you show you. I'm going to go that board. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, laws of Mitame, Mishnah, Moshe. Those who convey impurity to objects they lie on or sit on. Hedek Nebi, chapter 4. Aleph, Halacha Aleph. We're learning about <coughs> a woman who becomes impure. <coughs> Does that impurity, is that impurity conveyed retroactively as well? In certain cases, yes. In certain cases, it is conveyed retroactively for 24 hours. And in certain cases, it is conveyed retroactively until the last inspection, which she declared herself pure. Aleph 1, Arba Noshim. There are four categories of people who have what Halacha calls a chazaka, who are established as being pure. The assumption is, because of their condition, they are pure. Therefore, Dayon, Shaton, it's enough if they become impure that it begins now, from the moment of discovery. And they will not be declared impure retroactively up to a certain point in time, because their assumption is they are in a state of purity. If a woman is in a normal state, then if there's reason to declare her impure retroactively, then one should, or she should. But if a woman is in a state when she's assumed to be pure because of her condition, then there's no reason to declare her impure retroactively. What are these conditions which assume that a woman is pure? The first one is Mubaris, a woman who's pregnant. Pregnancy, by definition, under normal circumstances, precludes shows of blood. If blood shows during pregnancy, there's something wrong. Umanika, a nursing woman, <clears throat> by and large, the act of nursing, or as the Rambam will say, the act of childbirth, whether a woman gives, uh, goes on to nurse or not, causes her body not to menstruate. Ubisula, a woman who is a young girl, and she never had a menstrual cycle yet, a child, then she is assumed that she doesn't menstruate. Uzikena, and then a postmenopause woman, a woman who ceased menstruating. These four categories, pregnancy, nursing, too young to menstruate, too old to menstruate, these are assumed to be pure unless ascertained otherwise. And these are important principles in halacha, as the Rambam brings down here. Ezehu, he moved us. Now, we need definitions. What's considered a pregnant woman? Misha Yukar Ubra, from the time the child shows and the cutoff, according to Allah, is generally three months. What if she was in the state of assumption, where she is pregnant, which means more than three months of pregnancy? <coughs> and she saw blood. <coughs> so, what we're concerned about is that she lost her state of purity because she saw blood. And then she miscarried a placenta with air in it rather than with fetus. A double shade of blood or whatever it was that was in that placenta was not a fetus. She returns back to her assumed state of purity, and if she shows, it's enough to declare her impure from now, and she does not have to go back retroactively. <coughs> what if she saw blood? And then she reached the stage of pregnancy, where her pregnancy was obvious. And again, I believe that's three months. Then she also becomes retroactively impure, like all other women. Why? Because the blood came before the pregnancy level. Because first she saw blood, then she was enough pregnant to show. So that's the definition back and forth in pregnant. And in note two here, in the Mosnaim Rambam, he says she is three months pregnant. That's the meaning of showing. So there we took care of the definition <coughs> of a pregnant woman. If a woman is three months pregnant, we assume she's pure. And even if she sees, it's only from that moment and on. If a woman is less than three months pregnant, and she sees, and the pregnancy, the three-month cutoff comes later, doesn't count. She is declared impure even retroactively. Now we go to the next category. What's the definition of a nursing woman? What's a nursing woman? The answer is 24 months from the moment of birth. That is the normal time when the body should not be menstruating due to the previous birth. I feel amazed by this law holds true in this context, even if she lost a child within the 24 months. A shikamalasu, or she weaned him and she no longer nurses him. Or she gave the child to a nursemaid. These days we say she feeds a formula. She's still considered for this purpose a nursing woman. And if she sees impurity, she becomes impure from this moment on, not retroactively. That mark of 24 months, even though she continues to nurse, it's 25 months and 26 months, she's nursing. She's continuing to nurse. Retroactive impurity kicks in because nursing past 24 months does not count for the purpose of this halacha. So that's the definition of category two. So just to review, the definition of category one is she's three months pregnant or more, and when she shows blood, it is from that moment on, does not become retroactive. Category two definition, nursing up to 24 months from the time of birth, even if she's not nursing, even if God forbid she lost a child. She's still assumed pure. 
And therefore, there's no retroactive force of impurity. Next definition, what is considered a very young girl who doesn't have any signs of menstruation yet? A girl who simply never saw urine blood. With regard to blood that comes about, we're talking about utero or uterine blood. We're not talking about the blood of the piercing of the hymen. That is not called uterine blood. Kate Saad, for example, even if she was married, and normal conditions cause that after the first act of intercourse, she will see blood as a result of the marriage because the hymen will be pierced and that usually gives forth blood. A Yolda, or she gave birth, and she saw birth blood, but she never regularly menstruated. She's still considered a young girl with regard to impurity because she did not get into a regular pattern of showing of menstruating. I'm not talking about the same level of regular pattern we talked about earlier. And it's sufficient that when she shows impurity from that moment on, she can become impure. So that's the third category. Third category is, she didn't ever see menstruation before. What's a woman who's too old to see blood? That's already a very ticklish subject. Which woman is willing to admit that she's old? Any woman who experienced three months of menopausal state, she didn't see blood. But she also has to be at that age, where she's old enough to be at that age. What is that age? When do we determine somebody's old enough to be called in menopause? <laughs> very difficult test here. Please do not try this at home. If her friends, if her female friends, call her old lady to her face, she shouldn't get angry. That means she's old enough. Other than that, she's young. What if three cycles passed of not seeing, and then she saw again? She had three cycles of menopause, three months of menopause, <coughs> and then, voila, welcome back. Then three cycles of menopause. More or less, when she saw again, she becomes like all other women, and if she shows, she has to declare herself impure for the purposes of holy foods, going back to the last time she had a pure inspection. And he brings down here, in the note, for 24 hours or until the last time she had an inspection. This doesn't go for months. Bayes, <coughs> Sula, a young girl, she menstruated for the first time. Even the blood is flowing nonstop. For seven days, they left us dripping. Still, despite the fact that this was a seven-day flow, it's only considered once. This is her first period. But if she saw blood, the blood stopped. She saw again. That's two times. A young girl who is too young to have seen menstrual blood. The general age is 12. But she did see Pamisha Inoshnia once and twice. It's enough to declare her impure from the present. But she saw a third time. She becomes impure retroactively. Three months passed. And then she saw Daya Shata. It's enough from now. Three more months passed. And then she saw Daya Shata. It's enough from now. A third set of three months passed. She now is Matamba. Causes impurity retroactively. She gives Manalirais for her time came to see. Meaning she's 12. And she saw the first time. Daya Shata. She does not. Declare herself impure, retroactively. She second time. Three months pass, and then she saw that's enough for that moment. She doesn't go retroactive. Three more months pass, and she saw she begins to go back to her last inspection or 24 hours. Hey, Mo These three categories of a pregnant woman, a nursing woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a child. She gives Manamlides where their time came to see. The first sighting came. That's enough. That they're impure from that moment. But it happened the second time. Then there. Chazaka, their assumption of purity, is lost. To make sure Bihanu has been explained, but the first sighting was an outside event, which was an accident. And then the second time is also considered only the first time. A woman who is pregnant or nursing, three months passed, and she saw again. It's enough to declare her impure now. She does not have to go back. Three more months passed, and she saw a second time. That second time would be the third. Since the first sighting, she would be declared retroactively impure. We learned earlier, in the case of a woman who gives birth, and after seven days for a boy, and after 14 days for a girl, even if she continues to see blood, 
for 40 days or 80 days, it's called dam tara. It's called blood of purity for the purpose of Beis Hamikdash. A woman who sees blood right after 24 hours of dam tara, Dayashata, it's enough to declare her impure from this moment. Behold, Shadayashata, and anyone who is declared impure only from this moment, even though they don't cause retroactive impurity, she has to continuously, constantly inspect herself, in general, for the purposes of holy foods, a woman who inspects herself more and more. Mishubachas, it's praiseworthy. Chutz, with the exception of a woman who should never check herself. And that is Minanida, she's in the middle of her menstrual cycle, there's no reason to check. She's having this 33 or 66 post childbirth birth period. 33 day or 66 day post childbirth period. What's the purpose of checking? There's blood. The checking doesn't help. During the time when people ate food that was pure, very strict law, a woman cannot eat food when she's impure, so our sages instituted that these women would check themselves daily. The shachas in the morning, <coughs> because of anything she may have touched or produced last night, which would now become retroactively impure. Because of the impurity of the morning. Where she's going to eat, she should inspect herself as she's about to eat, because these laws are very serious laws. It's not a joke. A woman also inspects herself before intercourse, before intimacy, because of the pure foods. But if she was not engaging in pure foods, just for intimacy, this checking is not required. Because a woman has a set cycle, for the purpose of husband-wife intimacy, she's assumed pure, as we explained in great length in the laws of Nida. And in general, there's discussion about this whole issue. We assume that the Chazaka, the assumed state of girls, who did not reach the maturity age of 12, that they're assumed to be pure, and therefore they can eat the holy foods anytime. There's no reason for women to take these children and check and make double sure. But once they reach that age, they do need to check. They should get assistance from women who know how to do this. A woman who's a deaf mute, or someone who's not mentally balanced, or somebody who took ill mentally with illness, before they eat two more holy food, they need healthy people to make sure that they're not impure, then they can. And if they don't, they shouldn't. You would call some in my Israel. Now, we go back to the laws of stains on clothing, which we talked about. The fact is a rabbinic decree; it has to be dealt with very strictly. Any stains that are found amongst Jews, becheskes tumah, are assumed to be impure. If you're not sure what it is, when in doubt, it's impure. But we learned earlier that the non-Jew doesn't have the laws of impurity in general, specifically even post-rabbinic law, where they're assumed as of him. My rabbinic law stains do not take on that category. So if stains come from a non-Jewish society or group or person, then that garment has to be assumed as being pure. But I'm sorry, about Israel, but those found in Jewish cities to hate him are considered pure, because if we find a stained garment, a Jewish woman is not suspected during the time when people have to maintain ritual purity for based on English food to cast away their impure garment because it becomes a major source of impurity. A woman would hide her garment to make sure nobody touches it. The people therefore call all stains found anywhere to Hayden should be assumed as being pure, with the exception which are found in the holes or in hiding places or around a place where a woman in her state of purity would hang out. In a state of impurity. See, during the time that based on English foods were eaten, a woman would move into a different room to make sure that she doesn't spread the impurity while her family could in- engage in eating the based on English foods. Anything found around that room should be considered impure, but not around that room doesn't count. Commission Bianos, we explain. Now, what happens with stains? So we learned this earlier, and he repeats it, anything that is an impure stain, we learned much earlier that there are eight, I'm sorry, there are seven cleansing agents or detergents which Halacha recommends, and we have to use all seven. And he described that in great detail in the laws of forbidden relationships. Hilchas Surabiya, chapter 9. 37, and that is the saliva of a person who's not eaten, that's one. Beans that have been chewed, that's two. Urine that became sour, that's three. Lye, natron, cumin powder, and bleach. Those are the seven. So if there is a stain, you use one of these, you use all seven detergents. And afterwards, Bain, although I can't say whether the stain was removed. Bain, lay it wasn't removed. Matbila, you immerse it in a mixed blood and that garment is now considered pure. She lay because it, after being exposed to the cleansing of these seven detergents, it still didn't leave. I would seven, then it's dye and it's not blood. It's red dye number three. But if it was removed, or at least it lightened, then it is a stain. And once the detergents were applied, then the stain aspect of it is nullified. Even though there's still a little mark left. 
certain blood of as long as these seven detergents were applied, then it is considered as if it's nullified and gone. What do you do with it? You it, it, and you can even prepare holy foods on top of it because it is removed. It was immersed. Have a good day. You'd base beggage and make a garment where a stain was lost. You knew there was a stain, but now you can't find it. You gotta go to the optometrist. Ma'bidin, I'll call a beggar. Then you apply to the entire garment. Shiva Samamonim, the seven detergents. Ma'bidin, you immerse it in the mikvah, and it's good. All the beishis was Now, one of the sources of impurity which we learned about was semen. What if semen came upon the garment, and then you can't find it? In hayachadosh, if it was a new garment, you take a needle and you try to pierce the garment, the spot where the semen will be, the needle will will have a difficulty penetrating because the semen hardens when it dries. In hayachadosh, if it was an old garment, which this test will not work, you test it in the sun, and the place where the semen is will have like a film. You give him a bag and show you all the a garment that has a stain. We learned it was immersed. The Lassal Gabbatar sent something pure was prepared upon this garment. And then he passed through these seven detergents to cleanse it. And he said, Seba, then we assume it's dye. Mahatari Shah Satya said that which he prepared upon it is pure. Immerse it again. But if it was removed, a kayaina or it got lighter. And he said, Kesim, that's a sign that it was a stain. Mahatari said that which was pure should be declared impure. Shari Hikbid. Because he removed it, the tari must be immersed a second time to purify it. You're dialing 14 kesim shavuot shishas on one We talk about these seven detergents. What if somebody only passed six of the seven over this stain? Then he removed soap, and the soap removed it. Anything pure made upon it should be considered impure. Why? The soap removed it. Because he didn't use all seven detergents. We're going to assume it's still a stain. Perhaps had he put the seventh on it, it would have gone. What if he took all seven detergents and it still didn't help? Because of the and he did it again. And it passed. Anything that was made upon it between the first and second washing is pure. Anything after the second is impure. Because by his action, he revealed his mindset that it bothers him, even though it shouldn't have. He wants to remove even that which is left. The remnant. So it's impure until he nullifies it and immerses it. We explained earlier in the laws of forbidden relationships what these seven detergents are. And how it's applied. And again, we go back to Hilchas Isure Bia. Chapter 9, 37 and 38. Closing paragraph of chapter 4, Aisha, Shemesa, what if a woman passed on? And in passing or after passing, blood came forth from her uterine area. It also becomes impure, like a regular stain. Because anything coming from the uterus is considered impure. Even though it came forth after she passed on. The law does not apply. Being this blood emerged from an impure place. It has the stain law. Of course, there are other issues to think about. The impurity of a corpse and so on. If it had a minimum of a reveals, that's minimum volume that it has, the law of corpse impurity as well, as we learned in the laws of the impurity of a corpse. End of chapter 4. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchis, the laws of Mitame, those who bring about impurity through Mishka, Umoshav, through laying down on a bed or a cot, or sitting down on a chair. And this is chapter 5, Peter Kamishi, in the earlier chapters, we learned about four categories of sources of impurity. The Zov and the Zova, the male and female, have an abnormal sexual flow. The Hanida, or the woman who's menstruating, a normal flow. Or Hayeledes, the woman who gives birth. These are the four categories we learned about and the many detailed laws which apply to them. They are major sources of impurity in halacha. So now as we enter into chapter 5, he says, Hazov, Hazov, both the male and female who have the abnormal flow, the Hanida, as well as the woman who has the normal flow, the Hayeledes and the woman who gives birth. By Torah law, the act of birth brings about impurity, even though there's no greater joy than giving birth, but it also comes along with a temporary impurity. This is a very important law. Any people who experience any of the above four categories of impurity, they are eternally impure, and they bring about a contamination during the time the Beis Hamikdash stood of other people, of utensils, or or anything they would lie on, or anything they would ride on, such as a saddle, until they immerse in a mikvah. Which means that the fact that the flow stopped three years ago, 18 years ago, doesn't mean anything. The question is, did this person immerse in a mikvah after the flow ceased and make the proper preparations? Yes, good. No is a problem. So there's no statute of limitations where the impurity expires. It has to be dealt with by immersion in a mikvah. 
Even though many years passed without any sight or without any show of impurity, the problem is below Tablu. They did not immerse in the mikvah. They retained their state of impurity, which is a very interesting law which carries over in the world we live in today as well. Because although we have no base on Migdash today, and we don't have the consumption of holy foods today, and we don't maintain ritual purity today, but there are the laws of purity and impurity as it relates to marriage laws, as it relates to nida, as it relates to the monthly immersion in a mikvah. And the halacha is that even a woman who is post-menopause has to immerse in a mikvah once in order to remove the state of nida. Even though the state of nida had not existed for many years. She could be 10, 20, 30 years post-menopause. One immersion in a mikvah with the proper preparation is all that is necessary. So actually this halacha carries over into present time as well. And interestingly enough, this was one of the outreach campaigns which Rabbi Chadikov, secretary to the Rebbe, used to often remind people of that this is a good idea to bring to the attention of the senior citizen community to immerse in a mikvah, even though women are post-menopause, one time, and that brings about perpetual purity if they maintain that status. Okay. Bays and... Just to point out, as we get into this chapter, it's not a very long chapter, but it is a complex chapter, that these laws are very, very complex. Many of the laws are not applicable today. Some of them are. But many of these laws were covered earlier in various laws. We have Yochas Isurei the laws of the prohibited relationships. We have the laws of Nida and so on and so forth. So we've covered many of these laws. The, uh, there are a couple of factors that I'm going to reintroduce in order for us to understand these laws. One of these factors is something that, it says, that says in the Torah, in the very beginning of the portion of Tazria in the book of Leviticus. It talks about a woman, and this is based on English law. Talks about a woman who gives birth. If a woman gives birth and gives birth to a male child, she's impure for seven days. And then she maintains 33 days of yemei tohara, of days of purity. Which means that although, again, based on English law, although she continues to see blood, because she just had a baby seven days ago, that's not blood of impurity. It's blood of purity. So that at the end of the 33 days, or 33 plus 7, at the end of the 40 days, she becomes pure. With a female, it's even more. It's Shvu'ayim, two weeks, 14 days, plus 66 days, Yemei Tohar, days of purity, which means, although she sees blood, it is blood of purity. And therefore, this law is a law in the Torah which applies to the base on Middash times. Now let's look at base 2. Yeledes, what if a woman gives birth? She did not immerse after seven days when she has a little boy, which she should have done, because the Torah says that she should immerse. She didn't. Or the Arba also in a cave, or she had a girl. It goes for 14 days, and she, for some reason, did not immerse. If she immersed, then all the blood that she sees is called Demet Tohar, pure blood. Why? Because the Torah says so. But if she didn't immerse in a mikvah, then called Dom Shetira. Apapi, Shubasech Yemei Tehar, then all the blood that she will see, even though these, this blood flow are in days of purity. Purity is not impurity, but she did not immerse in a mikvah after 7 or 14 days. Harehu Kedam Hanidas, it continues, and it becomes like the blood of Anida, Umitane, and it brings about, in based on Nidash times, Lach Biyodesh, whether it's moist or dry. Bottom line, says the Rambam, and again, the Rambam doesn't make this up, it comes from the oral law, from the mission of the Gemara. That the Torah does not connect this phenomenon of Demet Tohar, of, day, of, of blood of purity, not only with days, 7, 33, 14, 66 for a girl, Ella, Biyomi, Mutfila, there's another component here, and that is she has to immerse in the mikveh as well. So, if she does, then it's Demet Tohar, then it's blood of purity. If she doesn't, then it's Demet Tumah, because the Tumah, the impurity, the defilement, continues because there was no immersion. Now comes an interesting law associated with this principle, Gimel 3, a woman who gave birth. Remember the process, the woman would immerse after seven days for a boy, after 14 days for a girl, even though she was still flowing. She descends to immerse herself, to transform herself from Yemei Tumah to Yemei Tahara from days of impurity to days of purity. And as she was descending down into the mikvah, she felt blood, which was, she felt it uprooted from her uterus, and she felt it descend down to the outer chamber within her. And it went out to the area within the feminine canal called between the teeth. What does it mean between the teeth? This is a euphemism just as the teeth are still in the mouth. But it's within, but it's without. So also there's an area outside the actual uterus, but still within. That's where she felt the blood descend from the uterus, but it never emerged out of her body. But that's what happened. The blood moved out of the uterus area. This woman is impure, even though she just immersed in the mikvah. 
because the blood was uprooted from her uterus, even though it didn't emerge out of her body. And her immersion does not help for this blood. This blood, when it ultimately comes forth, will not be considered blood of purity. Even though the blood is still within her, and in general we have a principle as long as blood is within a person. It doesn't contaminate the person, but still, ultimately when it comes out, this blood will contaminate, because as she immersed in the mikvah, it was already out of her uterus. However, if the situation is different, that the blood was uprooted from her uterus area only when she ascended out of the mikvah, which means that when she was in the mikvah, the blood was still within her uterine area, then she maintains purity because of the mikvah. Because the blood did not become uprooted as the previous scenario described. Now this blood, because it became uprooted only after the immersion, becomes considered blood of purity. And in general, the principle teaches us that immersion helps the kol hadom for any bloods, which is within the limbs of her body, and therefore this becomes pure blood. So here in three, the Rambam describes two scenarios. One scenario where it emerged out of the uterus area before she emerged, even though it didn't come out of her body. It was in an intermediate area. That makes her impure when it comes forth. Whereas if it didn't emerge until later, this is called down to our blood of purity. Again, to point out the whole blood of purity business is only based on bigger law. It does not apply today. Now, continuing in giving us information with regard to the transition from Yemei Tumah to Yemei Tohar from days of impurity to days of purity. Remember, we said when she has a boy, we go from 7 to 33. When she has a girl, we go from 14 to 66. You led this, a woman who gave, birth, who gave birth. Shetobla, she immersed in the mikvah as she should. Achar Sheba shel after the seven days of impurity, when she gives birth to a male baby. This is good. The Arba also shall be or next scenario. She had a girl, and she immersed after 14 days as she should. Or, sister scenario. There's another situation where, as she was giving birth, she found herself in a period of ziva, of abnormal flow. What is the halacha with regard to ziva? The halacha is she must count seven days of purity. Only after counting seven days of purity can she immerse in the mikvah. So she did that. She immersed in the mikvah. You see, if a woman gives birth, whether she's giving birth to a girl or giving birth to a boy, the 14 days doesn't count, the 7 days don't count if she gave birth in a state of ziva. Because in a state of ziva, she always has to wait 7 pure days. Whereas if in a non-state ziva birth, she would only have to immerse in the mikvah after 7 for a boy, after 14 for a girl, even though there's still full. So he continues to make the point that he's making, in any event, she now immersed in the mikvah, whether it's after 7 for a boy, after 14 for a girl, or after 7 days of purity for a ziva, who gave birth, she is during all the days of her purity, like any other person who was in a state of impurity, who was in a state of impurity, who immersed in a mikvah, and who's waiting for the sun to set. And this is a halacha that we learned again and again and again, based upon the first Mishnah. In Mishnah, when do we read the Shema at night? When the Kohanim go to eat their truma, what does it mean? Once the sun sets. That there is a halacha, which we learned many times, of Harif Shemesh, that they would immerse in the mikvah during the day, during daylight, as long as it was after sunrise, and then once the sun sets that night, they become totally pure. So you have that waiting period from immersion until after dark. Just as that waiting period exists in conditions where someone has to immerse in a mikvah and wait till it's dark, this condition exists in a much longer period when somebody immerses in a mikvah after seven days and waits 33 days. It's like a 33-day day. Someone, a, woman, a woman immerses in a mikvah after 14 days, she waits 66 days. At the end of the 66 days, it's like her sunset. It's a long waiting period. The same goes for a ziba, who had to count seven pure days, and then she immersed, and now she has to wait that period. She has the law of someone who immersed in a mikvah and waiting for the sun to set. In this case, it's a long sunset, 33 days or 66 days. The point that Rambam makes here is What's fantastic here is that once the 33 days pass if she had a boy, once the 66 days pass if she had a girl, she does not have to immerse in a mikvah again. It's just like a person who went to a mikvah in the morning for a more minor state of impurity does not have to immerse in a mikvah again when the sun sets. It's just a waiting period. When these days complete, she is like someone who immersed in the morning waiting for the sun to set. Her sun takes 33 or 66 days to set. Now, says the Rambam, when does this fantastic law apply? It has a limited application. When does this apply? By the way, if this sounds complicated, let me tell you, it's not you. It is. When does this apply? That she is like someone who immerses in the morning and only waiting for the sun to set. For the application of eating truma. Or eating miser, tithe food. 
So then, when it comes to true, when it comes to Meiser, this halach applies. But when it comes to, in, to eating and, and engaging in holy sacrifice foods, which requires a higher level of purity, this woman becomes like a person who is stage one of impurity, which means a derivative of impurity. Not the Avatum, not the primary impurity, but the, the, the derivative of impurity, who has not yet immersed in a mikvah. The comparison would be somebody who touched a woman who was menstruating in the time of the Beis Amigdash. A, between Mace or someone who touched a person who was exposed to a corpse. Who did not get immersed. Or other similar, more minor forms of impurity. So when it comes to eating of sacrifices, this woman is not pure. She maintains a more minor state of impurity. So she has to immerse. Again, that's what we learn. That when a woman is a woman who gave birth to a boy or a girl, and she finds herself in the 33 or 66 days of purity, she may eat food. And if she indulges in truma, she makes the truma unfit, as if somebody immersed in a mikvah was waiting for their son to set, as I brought from the example in the Mishnah. When do we say Shema? When the Kohen can start eating his truma. When is that? When it's dark. When he immersed in the mikvah at 9 o'clock in the morning. I know, but he has to wait till it's dark. Shemesh is wired, as we will explain the fine details. Now the plot thickens. If her saliva fell, we learned earlier that there are certain liquids that are similar to blood. And they are saliva and urine and so on. If the saliva omidam tara or the blood of her purity fell, shit's not worse than saliva. I'll kick her on a loaf of bread of truma. Harehu bitara say this impurity is not powerful enough to make the object impure. Shamash because the liquid affected by its bullying maintains its purity. However, but it does contaminate with defilement. Sacrifice items give lada tumas like the derivative of impurity, like Arisha and the Tuma, until she finishes her thirty-three or sixty-six days, and then she will be declared pure for all purposes. Now that I'm it. Although this might not be mandatory in strict interpretation of halacha v'yedoli, it appears to me said the Rambam shemayachas shemetamis hakodesh that if she causes sacrificed foods and holy objects to become impure, she tzichat tefilah cheres b'seif that she does have to immerse again at the end. Yachakachtiga b'kodesh and then and only then can she deal with the holy foods. Why? Because we're concerned that she will not watch herself as carefully, because she knows she can contaminate food, so she won't be as meticulously cautious. Apa pisha ain't tzichat tefilah cheres liachilas atum. Even though as we said earlier, to eat truma, all she needs to do is wait for the end of the thirty-three and sixty-six days. So there's an extra level of caution when it comes to sacrifices. Says the Rambam, let her better go to the mikvah again at the end of the thirty-three or sixty-six days of purity. Hey, five. Now the plot thickens even more. What if this woman who gives birth happens to be affected with leprosy as well? So she's a leprous woman who gave birth. Leprosy is a serious state of impurity. On its own. So she has two causes of impurity. One is that she gave birth, and she has to deal with that. The other is she's leprous, and she has to deal with that. Now she did what the rule book says. She immersed after seven days after having a boy. After 14 days. After having a girl. And that only deals with birth, with childbirth. It doesn't deal with leprosy. Then the blood that flows from her, because she is also leprous, makes impure, like her saliva or like her urine. They're like the list of impure liquids we learned about before. Because the whole list we learned about before, that which comes forth from this woman, would be like someone would touch these liquid flows. The exception would be dissolved. Because dissolved is more stringent than the others. Why? Because we learned that the three liquids that come forth, the three discharges that come forth, we're talking about semen, saliva, and urine, make a person a primary source of impurity. Whereas here, we're talking about only a derivative source of impurity. To make sure we are as we explain. Vov 6. Now, I must also remind everybody, we learned this in great detail, that by Torah law, which again is not something we observe today, interestingly enough, parenthetically, the practical law today is a combination of the laws of Nida and Zoba. Back then, there was Nida law, which was much more lenient, Zoba law, which was much more strict. The law today is a combination of Nida and Zoba as it relates to marriage purity. But here we're not talking about that. And I also want to explain something that we learned in great detail earlier, because we're going to need to know this as we move along in this chapter. And that is, there's a lot of debate between the halachic sources as to what is the definition of nida, which in simple terms means a normal menstrual flow, and zova, which in simple terms means an abnormal menstrual flow. So the Rambam has a theory, which he follows throughout. And it's a theory which, I'm not trying to tell you that I understand it, but this is what it is. And we learned many, many chapters pertaining to this earlier. And that is, that from the time a woman begins to show, she has seven days of nida, period. As long as she is determined to be in Nida, she has established herself as a seven-day period. 
those seven days, no matter what's going on, whether she continues to show blood or she doesn't, are always followed by 11 days of Zobah. Which means, if she shows blood during those 11 days, she's not an Eva, she's a Zobah, because she shouldn't be showing blood. Now, even though basic mathematics teaches us that 7 and 11, that's not a liquor store, 7 plus 11 is 18, Still, the Rambam says the cycle repeats itself. After the 11 comes another 7 of Nida. After the 7 comes another 11 of Zobah. And this repeats itself for the rest of her life. As long as she's showing blood, 7, 11, 7, 11, 7, 11. That's how it could be possible for a woman to give birth in a state of Zobah. Because she's in the 11th cycle. Now, now's not the time to discuss this. We did this earlier, but I just want everybody to know that this is the sheet of the school of thought of the Rambam. Also, when it comes to Ziva, when it comes to the abnormal flow we learned earlier, there are two categories. There's Zobah and Zobah Gedoyla. There's a minor form of abnormal flow and a major form of abnormal flow. And we covered this in great detail earlier, much earlier. The minor form of abnormal flow is if she sees blood any time in these 11 days, one day. Then she has to be Shemeres, Yom Keneged Yom. So for example, if she sees blood in the 11 days on a Monday, Tuesday, she immerses in a mikvah and has to make sure there's no show on Tuesday. If Tuesday night comes, Mazel Tov, she's good. The one day, remove the impurity. If she sees two days, she has to again observe a day of purity to cancel the day of impurity. But if she sees three consecutive days, this makes her a serious major zobo called Zobah Gedeo. Now she has a serious abnormal flow. What does she need to do? I'm glad you asked. She needs to count seven pure days and after that she has to immerse in a mikvah and after that she has to bring a set of sacrifices. It's a whole different ballgame. So we learned earlier that the impurity is the same but the manner of becoming pure is different. In the first case, there's Shemeres Yen Kenegad where she observes a day for a day. In the second case, she has to have seven days of purity followed by immersion, followed by sacrifices. Now let's learn of Zobak a minor form of Zobak, Shetobah, who immersed by Yom Hashimur, for example, in my example earlier. She had the Zobak experience on a Monday. So Tuesday becomes her Yom Hashimur. Tuesday becomes her Shemeres Yen Kenegad the day that she, if she has purity, cancels out her Monday experience. When did she immerse in the Mikvah when she was supposed to? When is that? Achar Hanates, after the sun rose on Tuesday. As we explained in great detail in that section of Nidah. So Tuesday morning she immersed in the Mikvah. What happens in based on English law? To all the stuff she touched. What happens to a man she was intimate to her husband with whom she was intimate during that day? Well, we don't know. We have to wait till Tuesday night. If there was no show, all Tuesday and it's Tuesday night and everything is good. The holy food is good. Her relationship was good. In Nigma, if the day finishes, the sun sets, but later also, and she didn't see any blood that Tuesday, retroactively we reveal that anything she touched earlier is pure. The man she had relations with is pure. He's not obligated to bring a sacrifice, which we learned earlier that if she did see, he is obligated. But if she did see blood on Tuesday after she immersed in the Mikvah, which shows that she did not have a good, clear, matching day. The proof is she showed blood. Any pure objects which she dealt with are now impure because the, sh- the fact that she showed blood before sunset means it's a problem. She makes anything she laid upon. She laid down upon a bed, a cot, impure. A saddle, impure. And anyone she had relations with. Her husband has to bring a sin offering because he was, it was revealed retroactively that his relations were with someone who was in a state of Zeba. Now, what if another scenario? She immersed at night, <coughs> Monday night, or very early Tuesday morning. Before dawn. That's a problem. Because we learned earlier the immersion should be after sunrise. That's as if she didn't immerse at all. She makes that which she rides upon and that which she sits upon impure. And again, these are based on English laws that do not apply in today's world. Zion. Now we get into the 7 and the 11. If a woman sees blood on the 11th day of her ziva, just to refresh what I said earlier, the Rambam maintains that there are 7 days of nida days, of menstrual cycle, followed by 11 days of non-menstrual cycle. And following that comes another 7 days. So what if it's now day 11 in her counting and she saw blood? And she immerses in the evening on the night of the 12th. She does defile any objects that she lies upon or sits upon. Even though you can ask a question. Once day 12 happens, she's not fit to be a Zobah anymore. Because when day 12 happens, she's already back in the first of the seven of Nidah. We explain all of this in great detail way back when, when we learned the laws of the prohibitions of Nidah. Rambam goes on with this scenario. Okay, so now, what if she immersed as she should on day 12, after sunrise? Even though she may not engage in intimacy until the evening, until sunset. If she did, her husband is pure. And that which she lays upon or sits upon is pure. Even though she went and saw blood on the 12th day, after the immersion. Why? Because it's not a continuation of the Zobah. It's a whole different experience. It's the beginning of Nida. 
because it's the 12 days, the first day of Nida. Shukilas Nida is the beginning of Nida. Commission Biyanashal Bistun Nida, as we explained, and therefore, what's the difference? Blood is blood. No. The difference is that day 12, which is now day 1 of Nida, will not combine with the blood of day 11, which was the last day of Ziba. Therefore, last day of possible Ziba. Therefore, Eina Tzicha Lishmer Yehushnai Shnei Moser. She doesn't have to guard day 12 because Ziba can't happen anymore. All she has is Nida, which by Torah law, by Torah law, she can immerse and immediately deal with pure boots. That is because she segued from day 11 back to day 12, which is really day 1 of 7. Imagine this was not day 11, but it was day 10. So she still has another possible day of Zobo. She has to immerse in the morning of the 11th and guard that day to see what happens. Because she's not Nida now, she's day 2 of Zobo. She sees blood after the immersion. Anything that she dealt with that was in a category of purity is now impure. And the man she was intimate with becomes impure as well. Retroactively, even though, let's face it, she can still never become a major Zobo. Why? Because she needs 3 days. And 10 and 11 are only two days. When she gets into 12, it's one. This goes back to the principle of the Rambam Shita, that you have seven days of possible Nida, 11 days of possible Zoba, followed by seven days, 11 days, and so on and so forth. Therefore, when she sees on 10, even if she sees on 11 again, she can never see on 12, because 12 is not part of Zoba. Finally, the closing paragraph here. A male Zob, or a female Zob, major Zob, which means she saw three days of impurity. Then she immersed after seven days of pure counting. He or she, Commissioner Biano, as we explained, that there has to be seven pure days followed by immersion. One may not engage in any holy foods until evening. Why? Because this is not a Shemeres Yoim Kenegadein. This is not someone who guards a day for a day. This is not a needed situation. This is a serious Zob Gedeila. Shema Yiru Tumah, perhaps the Zob or the Zob Gedeila, will see impurity during day seven of the purity. What happens if he sees impurity or she sees impurity on day seven? It undoes all seven days. Everything he touched will become impure. Even though they do retroactively cause items that he laid on and sat on to become impure retroactively, but in the common they do not defile earthenware vessels behested by moving them. After they immerse, this is a special law. Even though they saw impurity on day seven, it undoes everything. Still, this law applies. And any earthenware vessel that was moved before the impurity came retains purity. End of chapter five. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchah is the laws of Mitame, Mishkab, those things that become defiled because an impure person sits or lies down on them. Pedic Shishi, chapter 6, and before we even begin chapter 6, I want to point out that needless to say, these laws are by and large laws without reason, not rational, logical laws. This is what God Almighty decreed, and most of them are based upon a word or a verse in the text, and certainly Mishkab and Moshev are clearly spelled out in the text that if someone is a source of impurity, such as a Zov, such as someone who has an abnormal flow, and we learned that there are four categories that are included in Zob, 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 Nido, and a woman who gives birth, who come into contact, and as we will learn later, pressure contact, with something that one sits on ordinarily, which means some kind of chair or sorts, something that someone lays on ordinarily, or there's another extension of this, also specified in the Torah, which is Merkav, a saddle, something one rides on, then the impurity is conveyed from the person to the object, and we're going to learn more amplification and more details regarding these laws in the six paragraphs of this chapter. Aleph 1, Kvar we've already established, we've already explained, in chapter 1, Halacha 1, Shehazov, that the person who is called a Zov, who has an abnormal flow, Vachaveirov and his associates, which means, as he points out there, also a Zova, a female Zov, a Nida, a woman who is menstruating, and a woman after childbirth, those are the four categories included in the word Zov in Halacha. Mitamin, convey impurity, what kind of impurity? Three new types of impurity. Mishkav, something that we ordinarily lie on, like a cot or a bed, or Moshav, something we ordinarily sit on, and something we ordinarily ride on. Now, is there really a difference between objects we sit on and objects we lie on for this purpose? The answer is no. Objects we sit on, chairs, and objects we lie on, such as cots or bed, they're all one halacha. Why does the Torah separate them? To teach us that we don't have to lie on the bed, we don't have to sit on the chair, it makes no difference. But, something that is called a cot or a bed, is a piece of furniture, utensil, that is fit to lie on it. That's called a mishkov. And something we sit on a chair, is fit to sit on. Now it doesn't mean you have to lie on the cot or sit on the chair. You can lie on the chair and sit on the cot. 
that is sat on the object that is made to lie on. Or he lie down on the object that's made to sit on. They convey impurity. It makes no difference. In fact, we're going to learn later. And it's all about putting pressure of the majority of the body on this item. It makes no difference. He sits, he stands, he stands on his head. It doesn't make a difference. It means most of the pressure of this body goes on this object. Therefore, says the Rambam, I chose to use the terminology, all over, whenever I talk about these laws, says the Rambam, I'm using the word Mishkav, which means something you lie on, and it includes Moshav. It includes objects you sit on. So whenever the Rambam says, I will say Mishkav, I mean Mishkav um Moshav. Whenever I say something you lie on, a kat, I mean a kat and a chair. Now, next category, what is a Merkav? A Merkav is something you ride on, like in modern Hebrew, Merkava is a chariot or a tank. It's anything that's suitable to sit on when one rides. Today, for example, Mardas, the Kapiton Asus, either a donkey's pack saddle or a horse's saddlecloth, a saddle, something you sit on. That's called a Merkav. So the Torah tells us that the Merkav also receives impurity from a Zav or one of the other three categories included in the expression of Zav. Base two. To define further, a mishkov, both mishkov, which includes, as we just said, moshav, something you lie on, the and something you ride on, kol echad mehen, all of these objects, the mishkov, the moshav, the merkov, every one of them are of, when they become impure, they become a serious source, a primary source, a father, of the primary sources of impurity, shotorah, of a biblical form. Now we learned earlier many times that there is the av hatumah, the primary source, that's why we call it father, and then there is the rishon latumah, the derivative which is a much weaker form of impurity. So the Mishkov and the Merkav become more of stronger forms of impurity called Avatuma primary. And here the Rambam is Shotorah, because we learned earlier that there could be biblical applications of Avatuma. That's not what we're I'm sorry. Let me correct myself, because when you get to my age, you think one thing and you say another thing. We learned earlier there could be rabbinic applications of Avatuma. This is not rabbinic, but this is biblical. Metami and Odom, the Caleb and And therefore, this translates into the following law that these items convey impurity to people, to utensils, bimaga, by touching, which means by touching a person or by touching a utensil. This item of Mishkov. And Merkov, the object you lie and sit upon, or the object you ride upon, conveys impurity to a human being and to a utensil, which means it's a pretty serious sort of impurity. That's why it's a Rishay, the Tumor, because that's the definition, I'm sorry. That's why it's an Abha Tumor, because this is the definition of an Abha Tumor primary. Furthermore, it also contaminates, defiles man by carrying it. So these are the three ways this can convey impurity. In that case, why do we have two separate categories now of Mishkov, of objects you lie on, which includes objects you sit on, and Merkov and a saddle? What is the difference between an object you lie on and an object one rides on? There is a difference. And that's what the Rabbim says now. Someone who touches an object that is normally lied on. If this was a person, for example, and as he has contact with the object which defiles him, he touches garments or other utensils, then this person who's having contact with the Mishkov, he conveys this defilement to other people and to utensils. derivative of impurity. So that's pretty serious. But somebody who touches something you ride upon, has a weaker form of defilement, where it does not convey defilement to other people. I'm sorry, to garments and to utensils. Even while still touching the original Merkov. That's the difference between Mishkov and Merkov. There's another form, and that is a person carries this utensil. A person is carrying the Mishkov or the Merkov. In the case of carrying, from the moment he encounters this object by carrying it, he conveys impurity to garments and all other vessels, as long as he's still connected to the source of that impurity. How do we know that when it comes to Merkov, the Torah differentiates between touching and carrying, and Mishkov, no. Because the verse tells us, a person who touches a Mishkov, which means a bed, should wash his garments. Why are the garments impure? Because he's wearing the garments. So this teaches us that by touching the garments, one becomes impure. As long as he's still connected to the source of impurity. Well, the Merkav, but with the object one rides on, the verse says, all of any type of riding 
Implement that one will ride on anybody who touches anything under that, Yitma the order should remain impure until evening. And the idea of washing garments or immersing garments in the mikvah is not stated there, which teaches us that Merkav has a leniency over Mishkam. That even when one touches it, one does not defile garments. But it says anyone who carries them, Yechabes begodah must wash or immerse his garments. So carrying is one of the same. But the one carries the saddle. But one carries a bed. Also, the person's garments become defiled. So clearly speaking, So therefore, this teaches us bottom line that these four categories of impurity, which are Shahazov, Dizov, the one the male has an abnormal flow, Bahazov and the female has an abnormal flow. And the notes here in the Moiz Naim Rambam talk about the fact that these Zov and Zov would be similar to modern day gonorrhea. It's simply a disease which conveys impurity. I said similar. Behanida or the normal menstrual cycle, how you let this or the normal process of birth. All of the above. Umishkovon and any object that they will lie on. Verukon and their saliva. Omeimeraglein and their urine. Bedam Nida and the blood of Anida Bezova. Or the blood of Bezova, your letters, Bezav Shalzeve. All of the flows of the above. Called Echod Me'elu. All of the above mentioned. Of is a pri- our primary categories of impurity, which is again a serious source of impurity. And if a human being touches any of the above, and a song or carries any of the above, it has primary effect by Metame Begodim. It also defiles the garments they wear. Or Shah Kalim and all the other utensils. Bishas Nikiyose. While the person is still touching that source of impurity. A Bishas Nikiyose. While the person is still carrying that source of impurity. But it does not defile. Like Adam, other people, the like nor does it defile an earthenware container, which for these laws has a common law with people. Shakol Hamatama Adam, anybody who defiles man, Metamaklichetis, also in these laws defiles earthenware containers. Anything such as the above, which cannot defile other people, and Metamaklichetis cannot defile earthenware containers. So therefore, bottom line, we learned, Shakol, Tomation, whatever the Torah talks about a person or a source of impurity, where it says he shall wash or immerse his garments. Why do his garments become defiled? Because any garments that he touches, as long as he's connected to the source of impurity, becomes impure. That's why that's why he has to wash his garments, meaning immerse in the mikvah. He makes the garments a derivative, a offshoot, a first level after impurity. Come there, you like him. And he causes other utensils to become impure. Keep God in my garments. The exception is earthenware vessels who cannot convey impurity. Not to man and not to earthenware vessels. Even though it's still connected to the source. That is if the verse says he shall wash his garments. But if any situation does not have this description in the verse of washing garments, then whether one is still holding on to the source of the impurity or not, it's all the same. It's a much lighter form of impurity. does not convey impurity to garments. But make sure Allah calls it to derivative. Needless to say, certainly does not convey impurity to people or earthenware garments. Bottom line is when one touches a riding utensil, such as a saddle, which we learned earlier is more lenient, does not convey impurity to the garments as well. Of the person who is touching, America is somebody who carries a saddle. He does convey that, because carrying is the same, as we learned, as we explained. So that's the story of Mishkov. And Merkav Gimel, moving right along, there's another thing we talked about, and that is a fairly unique situation. We're talking about Madov. What is Madov? Kol hakelim and Azov. Madov means something, a utensil that is above the Zov. Any utensils that are above the Zov, a simple example, what could be above somebody? A blanket. Ten blankets. A hundred blankets. Heim hanikroyim Madov. That's the halachic expression of Madov. Objects that are upon the person. Heim kulam. Any Madov objects are all kikelim shunigei like utensils which he touches. Sheheim rishin the tumah, which become a first level of impurity. We know that first level impurity matters do not convey impurity to people or utensils. That's an old law we learned. What do first level impurity objects convey impurity to? Food and drink. And that's a basic, basic law. That Rishon Latuma is only Metama Acholim Amashkin. First level impurity only conveys impurity to food and drink, never to people and utensils. Kishar Vlade Satuma. Like all other derivatives of impurity. Metumas Madov Bidibreim. And here the Rambam adds that you should know that the impurity of Madov, this object on top of the person, source of impurity, is a rabbinic decree. Dalit. Interesting law, Hazov, Hazov, Avani, Damayi, Ledes. All these four categories, plus, I'm going to tell you, a leper, Shemesu, who died. Now, as a rule, when a person dies, there's a whole new level of impurity coming out of death. But all the other levels of impurity do not apply. 
But in this case, they continue to defile. the Whether it's laying down or riding. After death, as they were, while they were living. Until that person will begin to decompose. Now that's a strange law. Why would this be? He says, This is actually a rabbinic decree. Why did our sages establish this decree? That a person can convey all of these impurities even after death. When by Torah law he doesn't. He said, because we're concerned that it will turn out that the person never died. He only fainted. Maybe one of the above will faint. And for now, that person will be thought of as dead. Well, dying lay but he really didn't die. So that person is contaminating everything because everybody thinks he's dead, but he's not. The paramedics didn't get to yet. So that's why our rabbis issued a decree that until the body decomposes, a person should rabbinically convey a first level of impurity. That is, if the person is a Jew. But we learned earlier that a non-Jew doesn't have, in general, the laws of impurity, except that we learned that there is a decree of rabbinic zov status to non-Jews. But that's for a separate reason, as we learned earlier. So in that case, nochri shemes, what if a Gentile died? He doesn't convey this level of impurity. Because the whole source of impurity of a Gentile, which we learned about earlier, was a decree imposed by our sages. We never have decrees upon decrees. We explain, hey, bye. Now the Rambam tells us a very central, important axiom, law, call mocking wherever. In every place, that you hear the expression of tumas, of impurity that comes, conveys to objects one lies upon or sits upon or rides upon. Doesn't necessarily mean that a person has to touch the object. Which one is lying upon? Ella, in other words, doesn't mean he has to directly lay or sit upon them. Ella, however, let's say there were large stones on top of this mishkab umerkab, on top of this bed, or saddle, or what have you, or, or chair. Which are made for sitting and riding. And this zob, this person who's impure, was carried on the rock, which is sitting on whatever. Now we learn that stones usually don't convey impurity. Still, that mishkab, that object which one ordinarily lays on, or that object which one ordinarily rides on, becomes impure. Manasa Abduma becomes a father, a primary source of impurity. Why? Because we don't need direct contact. We just need the pressure. I feel elef mishkov, even a thousand mishkovs. Let's say you have cots stacked a thousand high, and somebody's laying on the top cot. A merkav, or riding blankets, one upon, uh, above the other. And you know what? The person is not even riding on the riding blanket, even the top. He's riding on a stone, which is sitting on these riding blankets. They convey impurity, because this is not about touching. And this person, one of these categories, sits on top of the stone, on top of the thousand blankets. They all become impure. That's furthermore, whether this mishkav touches the earth. Or it doesn't. As long as one touches it while one is laying on it, they all become an abatuma. We have an agabov, so also if one of the sources of impurity are beneath, and there's a rock on top of it, so now you're putting pressure on the source, and food and drink, and utensils and people, are on this rock, above the source, they all become impure, at the first level. Whether it's a utensil, or food, or liquid, or a person, that touches the zav, or any of the above, that are on a rock above this source, all become vlad, a derivative tumah, which means a first level, and as we know, a vlad, a derivative does not convey impurity, like all them, not the people, like them, not the utensils, the exception is, a man who is on top of the zav, because until he doesn't separate, let's say the Zob is carrying a person. Then until, as long as he's connected, he contaminates everything, even his own garments, as we explained. And finally, in 6, food matters, liquids, utensils, which are not made, people don't usually lay down on food, or liquids, or other utensils, or writing, or sitting, or writing, any of the above, food, drinks, or other non-writing, sitting, or lying utensils, or below, or at the bottom. And then a Zob, or one of the other three categories, Zob, or Yodas, came, alayim, and sat upon them, lamayla, above them. The lay nogobo did not touch them, so what you have is, you have an object which is not mishkov, not moshov, not merkov, separating between the source of impurity, which is food or drink, or another object, and the person. Kulam, tohedim, the Rambam says they're all pure, because it does not fit into any of the categories of mishkov, meshov, or merkov. 
What if the man was on the bottom? Even though he's not touching him, he's just carrying him. This does convey impurity. Why? Not because there is Mishkov or Meshav or Merkov, not because of laying down, sitting down, or riding. Here there's a whole new category that comes in. Mishim because of carrying. Because the person is carrying the Zov. Like carrying anything else, which conveys impurity. Because anybody who carries anything impure becomes a derivative of impurity. Here we learn. Anything that's above the Zov conveys impurity, becomes impure, being owed whether another man who's on top of the Zov because the Zov is carrying him. Or cots, chairs, or saddles, or anything else because it's like the Zov is carrying them. Everything becomes a derivative because that's the halacha of no say of carrying. However, if the Zov is merely putting pressure on that object which is below him, if it's not, Meshav, Meshav and Merkav, if it's not a chair or a cot, or a saddle, tall hair, it becomes, it, it remains pure. Chutz mina Adam, with the exception, would be man. A kli, also the Meshav, the Meshav, the Merkav, or, as just mentioned, Meshav, Meshav, Merkav. Elashah Adam, the person becomes a first derivative. Akelim, Asim, the Meshav, the Merkav, Abba, but the above utensils become a primary, not a derivative. Kameshav, Yarnu, as we explained, end of chapter 6.